It was May 2009. 85-year-old Ted Mogul was sitting in his apartment when he receives a phone call, and on the other line is a young boy. Is this Ted Mogul? Yes, it's Ted Mogul. And Ted can hear excitement on the other line. Daddy, Daddy, it's him, it's Ted Mogul. We found him. For the next several hours, there was excitement and there was rejoicing. And why was there rejoicing? Let's take a step back. It was 1942. Ted Mogul swore an oath to protect the country by joining the United States Marine Corps. He ships off to the South Pacific where every day he's confronted with the brutality of mankind, death every single day. And people ask him, how did you make it through that? Well, Ted Mogul was the only Jew in his unit. And before he shipped off, he received a small Jewish prayer book. And he kept his Jewish prayer book in his front pocket. And he read it and he took notes in it every day. He's getting ready to come back to the States. And he climbs up. He's climbing up a cargo ship up along one of those net ropes. And as he's getting to the top, another Marine accidentally kicks him in the head and all of his stuff goes down into the water. All of it. Except a small Jewish prayer book that he kept in his front pocket. He comes back to the States, to his hometown of Omaha, Nebraska, where he marries his childhood sweetheart, Etta. And eventually they move out west. And during that move, he loses that small prayer book. Sixty years later, in an annual Jewish book fair in Iowa, a young boy, 12 years old, stumbles across a prayer book. He pays with it with his hard-earned money for mowing lawns, and he takes it home. And he starts to read through it. He sees all these notes. And then at the end, he sees his signature, Ted Mogul. He goes to his dad, and he says, this looks like something very valuable. He wrote notes in it about his war, about the struggles he had. we got to get a hold of him. So they look in the phone book, and they find about a dozen Ted Moguls. And the first one that they, they call is the Ted Mogul. That's why there is rejoicing. Eventually, he gives the book back to him. He mails it back to him. So get this. Something valuable was lost. It was found. It was restored. And there was rejoicing. Ted Mogul's kids say he'll never talk about the war, but he talks about that prayer book that was lost and found. I love to read stories like this, but I tell you there's a much bigger story that we are all a part of, and that's the story of God's redemption, the drama of Scripture, the author of the history who revealed to us in his word his story of redemption. How in the beginning of the story, God created He creates everything, including mankind. And just a little bit further, in Genesis 3, man rebels against God. And sin enters the world. The pollution of sin on everything. And you see all the way through history, up until now, how man is trying to save himself by whatever means he can. Whatever proverbial leave to hide his nakedness. But God didn't leave mankind hanging. You see, in Genesis 3, he makes a promise He says that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. And all through the Old Testament, we see the promises of God to his people who though they were faithless, he remained faithful. As the Apostle Paul says in his intro to Romans, he says that he was set apart for the gospel of God 
which God promised beforehand through his prophets concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And that promise goes all the way through the Old Testament. Just four days ago, we celebrate that promise. Emmanuel, God is with us. And Jesus did not just get created at that point. He's always existed. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when God was creating, all things were created through Jesus, the Word. Then the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And he came to seek and save that which is lost. So we look at this grand story of the history of redemption, and he takes it down to the personal direct level to the individual, seeking and save that which is lost, seeking out his lost, finding them, restoring them, and there's rejoicing. I kept asking myself, why would God do this for me, a sinner, an enemy of God? And it kept coming back to me, amazing grace. And as the Anglican preacher John Newton so beautifully said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but am found, was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time that we have together this morning to talk about your grace. We're going to be looking in your plan of salvation today. And just help us never to think that we're graduates of grace. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, to always remember what you did for us. Give me clarity in my words today. Fill this room with your spirit. In your precious name, amen. My name is Paul Mills. Welcome to Element. I get the privilege of starting week one of a five-week series that we're calling The Prodigal God. We're just going to be sitting in Luke 15, so if you want to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you. I think there's some in the back there on the, sh- the counter there. Or you can click on version. you can go to live, and you can get the notes there. Now Luke 15, uh, Pastor John MacArthur says that Luke 15 falls in the middle of a long uh, section of Jesus' teaching making the climax of his teaching. The late James Montgomery Boyce groups, there's three parables here. He he groups these parables into what he would call the parables of salvation. A parable is just a small story that makes a very big point. And all of these parables, they have a common pattern. Something was lost. Something valuable was lost. It was found. It was restored. And there was rejoicing. Now, I'm gonna, today I'm going to be covering just the first ten verses. I'm covering the first two parables, the lost coin, or the lost sheep and the lost coin. So look with Luke 15, we're going to start in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawn near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Let's stop there. I want to paint a picture of what we got going on here. We've got a wide mixture of people here. We've got the tax collectors. Some translations say the publicans. These are those that extorted money from the Jews. They worked for the Roman government. And the Jews despised the tax collectors. Because many times, 
the Jews knew who these tax collectors were. They grew up with them. It's like if the Russians came over here and they took over the United States. And then your friend who you, th- who you grew up with, who you thought was your friend, started working for the Russian government. So one day you're sitting on your couch, getting ready to watch some NFL football, when your friend knocks at the door. And you open the door. He's like, Paul, you can't watch NFL football anymore. You have to join a chess club. Oh, and you know that craft beer that you're drinking? You can no longer enjoy good beer anymore. If you're going to drink anything besides water, it's got to be vodka. Let's go ahead and take that TV, and let's go ahead and charge you some extra money for us having to take the TV. We would despise them. That's how the tax collectors looked on. They were despised. Then you had the outcasts, the sinners. This is the 13-year-old pregnant woman. This is the crazy homeless guy screaming at himself. The prostitutes, the drunkards. And then you had the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elite. They were the all-stars of religion. The Pharisees were so, they were so legalistic. They had a kosher diet. You're not supposed to mix milk and cheese. They were so legalistic. When they sat down at a dinner table, if somebody in one corner was eating milk or drinking milk in another corner, somebody had cheese and they had meat, they would get up and they would leave because in their mind, they're mentally becoming contaminated. That's how legalistic they were. And then he had Jesus. It's like somebody coming up to you and asking, hey, how would you like to go to this dinner party? Sure, who's there? Bill Maher, Howard Stern, Rush Limbaugh, Ann Coulter, and Mother Teresa. Oh, sure. Let's do that. That sounds like a party I want to go to. But those are the type of parties Jesus was in. And then, and see, what you have here is you have, what you really have is you have Jesus, the gospel, you have irreligion, and you have religion. And all of us can fall on the side of irreligion and religion. And how does that happen? On the side of irreligion, Peter says in 2 Peter, he says that Christians should supplement their faith with virtue, virtue of knowledge, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love these character qualities. And he goes on to say, if those aren't increasing, then you've become so nearsighted that you're blind, having forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. In other words, you have Christian amnesia. Then you have the Pharisees. You have the religious side. We can all fall under this. And Peter was called out in Galatians because of it. Here's Peter, a pillar of the church, eating with the Gentiles, And then certain Jews came from James. And then Peter distanced himself from the Gentiles, afraid of the Jews. And Paul calls him out. He says, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. You have Christian amnesia. And then you have Jesus, the gospel. The difference between the gospel and the religion when it comes to Christian obedience is this. Religion says, I obey, therefore I will be accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted because of the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Nothing I could have done. Therefore, I obey. It's a big difference. And here, what propelled Jesus to, to, what triggered him to get into these parables is that they're grumbling about Jesus, not necessarily because he was teaching them, but because he was eating with these people. See, in that culture, like many cultures today, 
when you eat with somebody, it's a sign of acceptance. I've had people come to me and complain to me that in Europe, if you don't ask for the bill, you could be there for hours. They'll never bring it to you. But the point is, the Europeans know how important to sit back and relax and enjoy each other over a meal is. It's not just about consuming food. Have you ever had one of those dinners with friends where you're so into each other's conversation that you're hanging on to every word and it's almost as if everything on the outside of you just trickles away? You could even have one of those big earthquakes in Santa Barbara. The 1.0s. Every, uh, several years ago, a man and I were in Positano, Italy. Positano is one of those towns where the buildings look like they could just fall right into the Mediterranean water. And we're sitting down in this little, re- it's this little shack, and we're eating food. And we hear some people behind us speaking English. So we start talking with them. And within a couple minutes, we're pulling the tables together. And we start having this conversation. We're hanging on to every word. We're getting super excited. We're getting super quiet, just waiting for these twists and turns in each other's travel stories. And what I thought was a 30-minute conversation became five hours. See, these people that were strangers a week before were now old friends. I like how Eugene Peterson in the message talks about this passage. He says that the Pharisees grumbled because Jesus was treating them like old friends. So, turn, so now go to verse 3 with me. He gets, starts going into the parables. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Right off the bat, Jesus probably would have offended some people there. You see, in that culture, it was an honor-shame culture. It was all about honoring your family. And a shepherd was the lowest of the low. It was the low end of the labor force. I had a job years ago. It was my first job. I worked in a restaurant. And they have, you find out really quick that a kitchen has a certain pecking order. You have your cook at the top. We called him One-Eyed Jack because he had a pirate's patch. He had enough teeth maybe to chew baby food. We're in this restaurant, though, and the, the, the cook's at the top of that. And then at the very bottom was the dishwasher. When the toilets got plugged, the bathrooms got dirty, guess who went out there? Dishwasher. Even if there wasn't plastic gloves, the dishwasher. We had a bar upstairs when they needed kegs moved upstairs. Guess who they called? The dishwashers. When somebody vomited up in the bar upstairs, guess who cleaned it up? The dishwashers. See, the dishwashers were looked down upon, and the shepherds were looked down upon. So it would have been offensive to some of the, especially the religious leaders. Now, in this parable, you'll see the common pattern. Something valuable is lost, it's found, it's restored, and there's rejoicing. But in this parable, like many of Jesus' parables, there's also layers, like a cake. So first you have this ethical layer. 
We're told here that the shepherd has 100 sheep, which in that day and age, an average family would have 15 sheep. So this tells us that this shepherd was actually, what villages would do is they'd hire a shepherd from within the village, and then that shepherd would be responsible for all their sheep. Because if the villagers hired a hired hand outside of the village, that hired hand would not have a vested interest in their sheep. That's why Jesus in John 10, when he talks about being the good shepherd, he says a hired hand will run if a wolf comes. But I am the true shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know my name. See, the listeners would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. And that's what's happening here. We have somebody who's responsible for all the village's sheep. So the ethical layer is this. Everybody listening would be thinking, yes, this shepherd needs to find that sheep because this, it's valuable. But then you have another layer. I call it the where's Jesus layer. Jesus is the shepherd. He's going after the sheep. Sheep are dumb. They're stinky. They're helpless. Who do you think the sheep are in the story? Us. Helpless. Then you have a third layer. So you have the first layer, the ethical. You have the second. Where's Jesus? And then you have a third layer, the theological layer, the deep meaning into it. Jesus is the good shepherd who rescues us because we're completely helpless. Sheep are so dumb, if they get scared, they will fall over and they will die unless a shepherd rescues them. Jesus picks us up. He rescues us. And the best part of it is he puts us on his shoulders and he carries meaning that he carries our sins. That's him carrying our burdens, our sins to the cross. And the most difficult journey for Jesus in this is carrying us back to that village. Taking on God's wrath on the cross was the most difficult, having us on his shoulders. We can tell because on the ninth hour when it became dark, when Jesus was on the cross, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus was quoting from Psalm 22.1. He wasn't taken from the Psalms. He was fulfilling it. Jesus Christ rescues us who are helpless. But then it goes on. He, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, And rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, and here's the sarcasm, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He's pointing it at the Pharisees. This is also, what's awesome about this is it's a fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, I'm just going to paraphrase it here. God's prophesying through Ezekiel, Ezekiel's prophesying for God. And Ezekiel says, says shepherds of Israel, in other words, uh, leaders of Israel, for far too long you've been using your power for your own gain. You have not fed my sheep. You have not helped my injured sheep. And you've eaten the choicest of foods. Therefore, my sheep have scattered. So I will come, and I will be their shepherd, and I will rescue my sheep. And the shepherd is Jesus Christ. But then there's rejoicing. Something valuable is lost. It's found. It's restored. And there's rejoicing. Then Jesus goes into the second parable. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. 
Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here, we have a woman seeking out these silver coins. She lights a lamp. See, in those days, there wasn't much lighting in the, the home. So even during the day, lots of times you'd have to light a lamp. If there wasn't any lighting, there'd be maybe a small crack in the, in the, the house. And so even during the day, you can get this image of this, this woman just with this lamp seeking through. And the flooring there didn't have tile or carpet. It was dirt. So this coin would have been stuck in this dirt. So like the other one, you have the, pa- you have the pattern. Something valuable is lost, it's found, it's restored, and there's rejoicing. And then you have the layers. You have an ethical layer here. This woman lost this coin. The word for coin is drachma. So this is the only place that this word is used. And it's equivalent to a day's wages. Lots of times they'd wear these coins like jewelry. They were the modern equivalent of a wedding ring. They were valuable. Several months after I proposed to Amanda, she's washing, Amanda's my wife, she's washing dishes, and she loses the coin, or she loses the ring into the sink. And we're thinking, we need to do everything we can to get that ring out of the sink, because it was valuable. This coin was valuable, so everybody listening would have said, yes, this woman needs to find that coin. And then there's, where's Jesus? The next layer. Many of us tend to think that we're the woman seeking after the coin. Like we're the woman seeking after God and then we end up finding him. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is the woman seeking after the coin, us. He even takes it up a more of a level here of how helpless we are. If you, uh, So I've got a coin here. It's not a real coin. I've got kids. What does a coin do if I drop and I put it in the dirt? It sits there, completely helpless. And that's the point Jesus is making here. I love how the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 describes it. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were that coin, completely helpless. And God rescued us. That's the theological layer there. God came after us, finding us in that dirt, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we were children of wrath. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in his writings that God didn't come to us when we were at some neutral ground. We were enemies of God, children of wrath. That's why Paul says in Romans that he's not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And why is it powerful? The wrath of God is, un, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We were enemies. We were those coins in the dirt. But God lifted us up. And we were only, he, didn't, he lifted us up from a low position all the way up to the heavens with Christ. Seat us with him in the heavenly places. That's the theological. We're the coins. And Jesus was seeking after us.
But then he goes on, he says, what I like here is he says, just so in verse 10, he says, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here, when you read it, it's God that's rejoicing. God is rejoicing. Lots of times we like to view God like he's elf on the shelf. Like he likes to see what we're doing. And if you've never seen Elf on the Shelf, you don't know what that is, I've got a little video here for you. God is watching you. He's watching everything you do. You know, we do Elf on the Shelf at our house, and I think he's creepy. So I've come up with my own tradition. I call it Barbie's Head on a Shelf. <laughs> all, all you need is a dog that likes to chew on Barbie dolls. It's very simple. And then you put it on your shelf. These parables, what we see here in these parables is we see our relationship with God. We see a vertical relationship. When the, when the lawyers came to Jesus and they asked him, Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the vertical relationship. You don't have to raise your hands, but who here loves the Lord your God with all their heart, soul, and mind all the time? It took Jesus to establish that relationship with God. We couldn't have done it without him. But then there's a vertical relationship. He goes on, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. you got the vertical relationship, our relationship with God, and we have a horizontal. So when we go out and we go, we're with our families, we need to have a lens of grace. We need to treat them with grace, knowing where we came from, not to have Christian amnesia. Then when we go out into our, communi- into our communities, we need to have grace, knowing where we came from. And our motivation to go out and give others grace should never be gain. It should be gratitude for saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. For giving us grace. The story doesn't end with us here as well. The story carries on. Because in Revelation 21, we're told that God comes down. He dwells with us. He will be our God. We will be his people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. The story carries on. And it's a much bigger story than a prayer book that was lost and then found. This is the reason why we do communion. We do communion to remember. You see, we forget things. And communion is about remembering what Jesus has done for us. His body broken but on the cross and his blood spilled out for us. We take the cracker representing his body and the blood or the wine or the juice representing his blood. We take that to remember what has been done for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace. 
Thank you for what you've done for us, something we could never do on our own. I pray that when we go out, that we will be people of grace among others, that we will bless others like we've been blessed. In your precious name, amen.